passage that we're up to uh, this particular week. So that's how we select our Bible passages most weeks. Whichever one we did the week before, we do the one after that until we finish the book usually. So Alon, come on up. Now most of you will know Alon, Alon and his wife Kerry, uh, are both doctors. And so I had a couple of questions because I started to write an introduction that was hypothetically about a doctor and I thought, we've got a number of them in our church, why don't I just ask them rather than guess on their behalf? So uh, Mr Barnes, Dr Barnes, (laughs) just because he doesn't like titles as much as I don't like being called Pastor Steve, why did you become a doctor? I guess just for the These record... Aren't you, mate. It's their oh, okay. I was just going to say, I guess just for the record, like if, if I'm on the spotlight this time, next time it has to be Rachel, right? This, this gets me off the spotlight yeah. for the next time? Okay. I can work around the professions to look cover them all. If that's the deal, I'll proceed. Um, it was year 11 or 12, I can't really remember, and I figured I needed to do something with my life. Um, I'd been a pretty hopeless high school student, um, but I, I prayed about it because I, I think... I can't even remember who told me, but someone told me that, yeah, in addition to sort of committing other big decisions in your life, um, such as, uh, you know, who you're going to marry, et cetera, like you should sort of think about your occupation and try and choose something which can glorify God. Um, lots of occupations help people, um, and medicine has the extra perk that you can sort of take it to, you know, it's, it's a pretty sort of transferable international skill. And... Every job has its ups and downs. What are some of the hardest things about being a doctor? Um, day to day, um, I really wish I could finish like on the dot and go home. Um, and I'm sure Kerry wishes I could get home on time for, for dinner as well. Um, and that's probably the hardest day to day thing. And then, um, I guess not surprisingly, like it doesn't happen often, but when you have a young patient die. That, that's always, you know, I think it hits everyone. But it's not the sort of thing we think, nah, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore, is it? No, no, <laughs> no. Because there's hard things, presumably there are also some good things. So what are some of the more rewarding things about being a doctor? Um, apart from, like, power, prestige and money. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no one who's more health and wealth than this man. <laughs> No, um, I, I guess yeah, people get in it for all sorts of reasons and I always struggle to sort of separate what are my selfish motives and what are my um, less selfish motives. But um, it is, it is uh, a pleasure um, when you do your job well, as, as I'm sure it is in any profession. When you do your job well, and particularly I guess because it's, you know, it's a bit of a, sort of a people-focused profession, so when you get a good outcome for a patient um, and you sort of sit back and you're like, yeah, you know, I've, I've done something well there. You know, that patient's going to... You know, not, not have that problem anymore. That's, that's rewarding. Good. There you go. There's a little insight into Alon's week as a doctor and make up for my hypothetical presumptions. Initially, I turned this screen off because I thought Alon was looking at my notes, thinking, making sure he directed it towards my notes, but I told him not to do that, so I switched it off. But I doubt there's many people who become a doctor because they think, don't know what to do, I'll just be a doctor. My marks are good enough, let's have a crack at doctoring. It's not someone you just casually think, oh, nothing better to do, I'll be a doctor. Nor have I ever met a doctor who thinks that their role as a doctor isn't in some way important. 
And the majority of the cases, most doctors you'll meet will do it because of their care and concern for people. Although that being said, you've probably met some exceptions where people, you may have met a doctor who just might be fascinated with the science of the human body and just like fixing it like they're fixing a car and not so concerned about the people. I can tell you, I could never be a doctor. I am squirmish around medical things. I sat on the floor for a first bit of Miller's birth when I started to feel a bit funny. I'd probably be throwing up in different places. I probably don't even have the intellectual capacity to go through and do all of the studies. But I've lived long enough to see people go through deep pain, tragic illnesses, and deeply wish I wish that I was, had the capacity to do something that would change that scenario. Whether it's my friend Tim, roughly around my age, when he was finally diagnosed with cancer, it was throughout pretty much his whole body. There was never even given a percentage of hope that he would live. Leaving behind a wife, three children. Or another friend, Dan, a friend of mine in Canada, who I had holidays with him and his wife. We went camping together, had a great time together. He died in a tragic motorcycle accident leaving him behind a wife and three teenage children. Or the amount of people I've met who have, who have lost a child either before or after birth. And there's something within you that just deeply wishes you could make their situation better, that you could change something. Why? Because these are people. There's something unique about human beings. Like when we tread on a fly, we don't really get concerned about it. Miller took great joy in squashing a cockroach this morning. Know that Sarah's mother, who's staying with us, hates cockroaches, and so she was quite happy to go point out she killed it for it. But there's something unique about humans that we are created in the image of God. And when they're hurting Experiencing loss and separation, there's something that deeply cuts us and we want to do something about it. When you have a why this big, you would give anything to change that. Today we're looking at a why that is so much abundantly bigger than all of our medical problems, all of our life's griefs and pains, But you know what the good news is? As we see them and we face them and we encounter them around us, we're not helpless. Matter of fact, if you know Jesus Christ, you are equipped to help them. As we're going through the book of Acts and the last number of chapters, we've been focusing a lot upon Paul. We're not focusing on Paul as a professional or an elite minister, we're looking at Paul as a Christian who has the same gospel that you and I have, the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. He's been travelling through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and now he's in Athens. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to think in terms of three significant prayer requests Paul, can you put control back to this thing or Matt? 
God, open my eyes, open my mouth, open my arms. So let's open up in prayer as we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is good. Your word is given to us that we might see you so clearly and beautifully, that we might see the wonderful plans and purposes that you have for us, the very reason why you call us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You desire us to be equipped and trained for every good work. May your spirit take your word to transform us, to become more like your son, to follow him in faithfulness and obedience. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So open my eyes. So Paul has left Berea. He's he's gone down to Athens. And as he was going back in verse 15, he's requested that, that Timothy and Silas be sent to come down and join him. So what does Paul do while he's waiting for his his mission team to to assemble there? Well, he probably does what most people do when they're going into ministry. He just takes a look around, becomes familiar with the setting in which he's going to be ministering within, the people, the culture. But as he looks around, what does he see? Does he see the beautiful architecture and there would have been plenty there. There's the Acropolis and the Parthenon. You can, you can even go there and see those things today. But what he talks about, what captivates him when he sees, isn't the beautiful architecture? Isn't the, the diversity of culture? What strikes him, he says, he sees that the city is full of idols. And his spirit is provoked within him. Now, there's no doubt that the temples and some of the idols themselves may have had some inherent beauty. But he doesn't look around and say, wow, what a beautiful temple. Let's get a selfie and post that on Instagram. He doesn't go, wow, what a beautiful display of a diverse culture in this city. He says, this place is full of idols. And his spirit is deeply provoked. Does that just mean he's a little bit annoyed? It's actually the same language used of God in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses up on Mount Sinai and the people while they're waiting build a golden calf and worship that and say, this is our God. And it says, and the anger of God burnt against them. That's how Paul feels as he looks around and sees a city swamped by idols. Does that mean that Paul's just so narrow-minded? incredibly intolerant, just can't handle having other religions around him. I don't think that's so much the point. Paul has come to know the almighty, all-wonderful God, the one who loves and cares so much about his creation that he's intimately involved in, that he sent his son Jesus Christ so that we could have a relationship with him. And as Paul looks around... He's grieved to see that people whom God created, whom he has given a God-given ability for a sense of awe and wonder and worship, and instead of them directing that to the one to whom they were created by, directing that towards small, insignificant things they'd carved out of wood and stone and precious metals. Paul was grieving in two senses. He was grieving for God that he wasn't getting the worship that he deserved and the honour which he was worthy of. 
But I think there's a sense to which he's grieving for the people, that they are settling for something far less than what they were created for. That's what Paul felt when he looked around at his surroundings. When you walk around Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia, what do you see? What do, you, what do you sense and feel as you look around the area in which we live? Now, I know immediately you might think to mind, well, we've got this mosque here, we've got this cult building here, we've got people wearing this type of religious apparel, there's not much in the way of idolatry in our town. Well, it depends if you understand what the word idol means. From a biblical standpoint, an idol is something that takes primary place in your life in that place that should belong to God and to God alone. The very thing which your whole world revolves around, that is your idol. Whether it's pursuit of money, success, power, sexual gratification... These things all can be your idol. If that's what you live for, if everything you think and orients around that, that's your idol. And you know what? It can even be good things. It can even be your family, your kids, your desire to have family and kids. Church, being involved in a ministry, these things can take a place that belongs to God alone if that's the thing that you get all your sense of value and identity in. And if you want to know a good way of testing whether or not something has got into that place, think about how you respond when that thing is, goes wrong, when that area of your life is not going well. If that completely shatters your whole sense of identity, your whole morale, your whole idea of who I am, then that's possibly entered into a place that it shouldn't be into. And when our world is centred around created smaller things that we're not supposed to be put in that place, it's always going to be a roller coaster. Those things will have their ups, they will have their downs. But we were called to be and put God in that place, the unchangeable, the all-worthy, And just like Paul in Athens, while it might not be so visibly obvious, we are surrounded by people who are consumed with idolatry, whose God-given sense of awe and wonder and worship is being directed at insignificant, minor things that we were not made for. So what does Paul do when he's grieving for God and grieving for the people, waiting for his mission team to arrive? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It's a pretty natural response. It's very much like Jesus' own response when he enters into town and he says, and he had compassion upon them because he saw that they were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Paul was grieved not only for God, he was grieved for them who'd settled for something far less than what they were created for. And because he cared for them, he acted. We'd actually probably question his concern for them if he didn't do anything. He didn't say, well, I better wait until Silas and Timothy come. That's my, that's my missionary team. They're not here. He acted because he saw the need and knew he had the capacity to act. If there's one church 
complaint or a complaint that comes up in church life that grieves me more than any other. It's when someone says, our church doesn't do outreach. Now, it's not the idea that I don't think churches should do outreach. We've been given a mission to go and make disciples of all nations. But when it disturbs me is when somebody says that, and what they mean is, personally, I'm not doing any outreach because my church isn't taking the initiative to provide an event for me to be involved in. If you look through the scriptures, you actually won't find a single case where, as a ch- local church body, they organised an outreach. The call to go and make disciples is the call upon every single Christian, regardless of whether their church is doing something at all. It's kind of like saying, I don't pray during the week because our church doesn't have a prayer meeting. It's a silly way to think about things. Paul didn't wait till he had his team. Paul knew that was his identity, who he was. But as we see Paul approach in this passage, he's got two different groups he's addressing with two different approaches. He's got those that he approaches in the synagogue that he reasons with. And by the basis of why we've been in the previous chapters, he's been reasoning from the scriptures to show that Jesus was indeed the Christ. But when he's dealing in the marketplace... Everyday common people who don't have that background and understanding of the scriptures, his approach is very different. Athens was a city very well known for its religious activities. There was even a historic comment that was said that it's easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. It wasn't just a religious city, it was a hub of knowledge and philosophy and arts. Verse 21, we see how keen they were to learn new ideas, saying that they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, some of those that Paul interacted with, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they didn't think that Paul had anything new. They said, who's this babbler? Which literally translated term means picking up seeds, kind of like what a bird does, picks up a seed, takes the bit they want, then spits bit out. They're saying, this guy, Paul, he's just picking up little bits of ideas of other people's religions and just spitting out things. He hasn't got a new idea. He's just bringing lots of different ideas together and presenting them as his own. But others who are more religious-minded, they thought, this Paul is teaching us about new foreign gods or foreign divinities. Does it strike you that it says that in plural? They think that Paul is teaching about multiple gods and then it says Jesus and the resurrection. That's how foreign the concept of a resurrection was to them that when they hear Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection, they think of the resurrection is some secondary god. But the key to want to know more, they actually ask Paul, we want to know this new teaching. We want to know what these things mean which is quite an open confession that this thing you're talking about, we're ignorant. And Paul sort of addresses that ignorance and highlights it when he addresses the crowd a little bit later on. But what an evangelist dream that would be. People are keen to hear what you've got to say and they actually want you to go tell other people about it. And not just any old people. It's like, let's go before the Areopagus. These are like the local leaders who define 
the local stands for morals, ethics, education, religion. This is a great audience to get put before. All because Paul was burdened by grieving for the honour that God is not getting, by seeing people settling for something far less than what they were created for. And he acted. And now he's before the Areopagus. Our first prayer is, God, open my eyes to see the spiritual reality that lives around me. As he addresses the crowd, he's not just talking to those leaders. He says, men of Athens. He's addressing every single one of them because the news that he's sharing with them is true for all of mankind. Now, some scholars think that he starts buttering up with a bit of of a compliment. Some think he's actually kind of having a go at them. When he says, I perceive that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. But do you think he's complimenting when he says, I believe you are very religious? When, when he's seen the idolatry that exists around this city and, he, and the anger in him burns against that? What he goes on to say is, you, know, you guys, you think you're really religious. Let me highlight to you how deficient your religion is. Let me highlight you highly thought of great intelligent thinkers how illogical some of the things you do are. Think about it. You worship objects, things, and you're the, you're the smart city. You've even got an altar to a god you don't even know what his name is. It's a little bit embarrassing for Athens, isn't it? That this is the centre of all great thinking. And they're worshipping objects. And they don't know who this other God is they're, they're worshipping. So Paul's going to present to them the God they have never known. And a God that is far greater than any sense of God they've ever considered in their mind before. Far greater in power. One who's actually involved in the affairs of this world, very different than than their thinking. One who actually cares about the people in the world. But when he says, what you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, he's not saying that, now when you worship this unknown God, you're really worshipping the same God as me. He's not sort of taking that universal approach of, no matter what religion you do, you're all just different ways of doing the same thing. He's saying, you don't know the true God. You've acknowledged that. You've said that you don't know what I'm talking about. You've acknowledged there's a God you don't know. Let me tell you about the God you don't know. He kind of presents in four key points, saying God made everything. He sustains everything. He made us to seek him. And he calls us to repent because he will judge us all. Every single one of those points challenges their current view of what a God did and what a God does. The very first words he said would have been majorly offensive. He says, the God 
who created all things in heaven and earth. So in this city that has more gods than people, he's like, there is one God. And this one God, he created absolutely everything in heaven and in earth. And therefore, by nature, he is Lord of all. He is the ruler. He's the master of every single thing that exists. And okay, you smart city, does it make sense if there's a God who made all, who is master of all, that you can contain him to a small part of that creation? You can put him in a building? Or somehow you could worship him by making something out of wood and stone? This one who's given us life and breath and everything sustains all life. Do you honestly think he needs anything? Just even the very energy you use to make your idols, he gave you that energy. He's giving you your breath. And if they're inclined to think that this God who made everything in heaven and earth, think, oh yeah, good, he made the, the mountains, the sea, and all that sort of stuff. He goes on a highlight. He made people. Every nation of the earth came from one people whom he created, Adam and Eve. That God didn't just create. There was purpose. There was intent. There was plan. He appointed the times in which you live. It's not coincidence that you're alive here and now. Designated the boundaries in which you would live. It's no coincidence that you live where you live, that you work where you work. And there's an inherent purpose, that they may seek God and find him. That would have blown their mind. They've just heard about a God that's far beyond anything they've ever heard. And Paul now tells them, this God who made everything and you, made you to seek him and know him. Most of their ideas are gods are gods you can't get anywhere near. That inbuilt ability that God has given us for awe and worship, he's given us because that was part of his goal in designing us that we might seek and find him. And he's given us everything to lead us in that direction. He says that we might feel our way to him or literally grope our way to him. That's sort of reminiscent of the of Hercules, you had the eye, eye poked out and you had to kind of feel his way out to try and find the enemy he's trying to, to seek. He's saying that God has given us enough in this world signs that point us towards him in his direction. The way Paul speaks about it in Romans 1.19 that what can be known of God, that there's an eternal God of great power, he has made clearly known to us. And this God is never far from us. Never far from any one of them. Even though up until then they haven't heard a thing, he is never far from them. Now I don't know how far or close God feels at the moment, but he's not far from any one of you. It's just a case of whether or not you are looking and finding him. Quite often I'll be at home in the pantry and I'll say, Sarah, where's the rice? It's in the third shelf. Oh, okay. I've looked in the third shelf, we've got no rice. This rice, she says, is right there in front of me. So if you ever visit our house and you see 
a multiple numbers of something in our pantry, you think, why would you have that many of them? It's probably because I looked in the pantry and bought some because we didn't have any. So close is God to every one of us, whether we're a believer or not, says in him we live and move and have our being. Even the most offensive atheist gets their life and breath, movement, sustained by God. What might sound foreign to you guys is that when he says in him we live and move and have our being, actually comes from a 6th century poet who was speaking about Zeus as God. Yet Paul's got no qualms whatsoever in taking that quote because it's true in what it says about God and using that as a way of communicating the gospel. Sure, at the synagogue he's reasoned from the scriptures, they were familiar with the scriptures, but when he's in the marketplace, he's happy to use whatever it takes to communicate clearly that same gospel. He does two back to back. He goes back to a 13th century BC poet who said, again, speaking of Zeus, but he takes it and applies it to, to, to our God, saying, We are his offspring. Bringing them back to the idea is that we are offspring of God. He made us for a relationship with us. We were created, as he said, that we might seek and find him. And if even they understand the idea that we are his offspring, doesn't that make you second think about some of the idols they have and say, oh, see this nice, beautiful bit of wood I've carved? I'm an offspring of that? No one wants that kind of identity. We can know God. We can know this almighty God. Why would you settle for something so much less? What a slap in the face that would be to God. When we can know him, he made us to seek him. And we'd be content with something so much less. This God will not overlook this. And he never did. Don't for a second reading this and say, oh, up until now he's been okay with it, now he's gone grumpy and he's changed his mind. When it says that he formally overlooked, meaning that he formally hasn't given us what we deserve at the moment we deserve it. But what he's highlighting now is now there's coming a time when he has set a day of judgment. Now what he does is he commands everyone, everywhere. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? Everyone, everywhere, to repent. To turn away from pursuing and centering your life around these small insignificant things that we weren't created for to the true and living God. Because he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the one whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. That not only reveals who is that judge, but his power and authority to judge. If Paul was trying to put forward a gospel thing that kind of teased their ears, gave them everything they want to hear, I think he'd cross every boundary they didn't want to hear. But having seen the reality of their situation, he grieved that God wasn't getting what he should have, grieved that they were settling for something so much less. He spoke truth, hoping to help them see something bigger. See a bigger picture of who God is, a bigger picture of who they are, their self, their purpose, their meaning. 
We should pray, God, open our eyes, open my mouth. So what happened? As we've seen throughout the entirety of Acts, there's two responses whenever the gospel is proclaimed. Some, when they hear about the idea of a resurrection, they burst out with laughter. Now, we saw how much the idea of a bodily resurrection was foreign to them. They thought when Paul spoke of Jesus and the resurrection, he was talking about two separate gods. But there are others who wanted to hear more, and presumably Paul did communicate more with them. Some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Even some from this great council of thinkers about religion, philosophy, and education were convinced. Not because Paul's case was the, was the greatest worded case ever done, because that's what God does. He takes his gospel and he saves people. But what I've loved seeing through these last chapters, every time when we see a response, they're not backwards in saying that women were amongst those valuable people who entered into the kingdom of God. Even though they weren't valued by the community around them at that time, they were valued in the kingdom of God. The New Testament church has never been a boys' club. And it's not just them, there are others, we don't know how many others in addition. Now, there are a number of people in this room who have done Bible college at some point in their life and they probably had some of the struggles with some of the academic sides of things, particularly some of the idiotic things that they've read by some scholars. And as you read through people writing about this passage, there's some people saying, this can't be Paul. Paul would have have given a good, solid case from the Bible, not this antsy-pantsy sort of choose little bit from their philosophers and things like that. This is Paul. This is Paul who desires to see people saved, who in one setting or reason from the scriptures, that's what they know, in the common marketplace amongst pagans is more than happy to use other things to communicate clearly that same gospel in a way that they're going to get it. And there'll be someone who say, Paul didn't do this again. He must have thought it was a bad idea because he maybe only got four or five converts through that ministry. Well, we don't know, we know definitely two plus others, which means a minimum of four. Do you really want to downplay that? Do you want to downplay that as one man's ministry amongst these people that at least four, probably quite a lot more, were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of their beloved son to know the God to whom they were created to know? And you want to say, oh, it's only four? I would be overjoyed if amongst the 50 or how many of people who are here if we saw four plus come to know Christ in 2019 and you want to think little about one person bringing four plus? They weren't just converts. It says they joined Paul because when we come to trust in Jesus, we not only become his children, we become part of a family of his children. That we open our arms and receive those whom God calls into his family and we have our local church family as well. So what? I always tell my, title my conclusion, so what? If you've got to this point in time and you're actually thinking, yeah, so what? Is there anything worthwhile knowing about this? Then hopefully that means you're a sleeper. Otherwise, I've been very poor at doing what I do. 
When your why is big, you are willing to sacrifice anything. When the stakes are high, it drives you in everything you do. Paul couldn't be clearer than he was. There is the God who made everything and therefore is the Lord over all things. He sustains us. He gives us life and breath and everything. And not just to Christians, even to the the most offensive atheist. He gives them life, breath and everything. In him we live, move and breathe. Even as an atheist might say the most repulsive thing about our God, they do it by the strength which God provides their body to be able to do. Have you ever considered that? The grace of God that he would allow people to move and function even when they use what God gives them in such an offensive way. But he created us as well. Not just randomly and haphazardly, but with a purpose. Appointing the time in which we live, the, the boundaries in which we live. It's no, it's no coincidence that you live and you work where you work. It's no coincidence that you interact and meet the people that you meet with. But part of that bigger plan of God, which has as its end goal, that his creation would seek and find their way to God. That he's given us everything we need that will point us in that direction. And if we're actually looking, he's not far from any single one of us. But as Paul spoke about a day in which he will judge, it's either a day of great fear or a day that we have absolutely not a care in the world. It's a day of great fear if we haven't dealt with the problem of our sin which puts us under his judgment for rejecting the one who has given us life and breath and everything. On that day, we will receive the punishment that we deserve. But it's a day we don't have to fear. Because that's the very reason why Jesus came to die. He came to die to bear that punishment that was due to us so that we don't have to. So on that day, we're like, Jesus paid it. It's done. It's a day I look forward to when I receive the complete fulfilment of my salvation. He was raised in victory, demonstrated his power over all. You and I can know this God and spend an eternity with him. Don't be so foolish to settle on something smaller, something so coincidental, when we can know our maker who gives us everything. Now for most of us who already do and have found Jesus and can look back and say, man, what a joy it was the day I realised that I could know the almighty living God. I want the, the prayers and thoughts that we've thought about this morning to challenge us and change us. God, open my eyes. Open my eyes to see the reality of the world in which I live in, the neighbourhoods I live in, the workplace in which I live in. God, give me that deep sense of grief that that there are people who are not giving you the honour to which you are truly worthy of. But give me a deep mourning and grief that these people would settle for something less than what they were created for. And let that lead me to open my mouth 
to speak the truth of what Jesus has done. That, that is the gospel, that is the power of God for salvation. That the one who sends us is, has all authority and power, who enables us by his spirit. And you know what? As we speak that truth to whoever we speak it to, we've just seen that's the very purpose for which God created them. That they would seek and find God. And lastly, that we would open our arms that as people come into his beloved kingdom, we would welcome them into the family of his local church. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is only by your grace that anybody comes to know Jesus Christ as Saviour and you as our God. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is pleased to reveal himself to mankind and that God, that you delight that all people everywhere that they would repent to turn from the inferior to the almighty, to the very thing that we were made for. Lord, help us to be mindful about who we are who we are, where we live and our place in your purposes. That like Paul, that we might be happy to be good stewards, agents used by you who are moved with compassion for the people around us. Who speak your truth. The truth that has inherent power and the truth that actually nourishes that deep longing that you have created within people for a sense of awe and worship. And Lord, that we might rejoice as we see people come into your kingdom and join your family of people here on earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.